Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. You may be a fan of The Walking Dead, a fictional show where people come back to life, but there's another, more realistic phenomenon that just won't die. It lurks underground during the cold northern winters, then when spring arrives, it roars back to life, surging up from underground, ready to consume whatever gets in its way. We're talking about zombie fires. We need to travel poleward to the boreal forests, basically north of the 50th parallel. These green areas make up 60% of Canada and stretch coast to coast. Here in this beautiful landscape, forest fires happen in the summer. You'd think that when winter sets in, that the snow and cold would snuff them out. But zombie fires sort of persist uh, through the winter by, by going underground. Zombie fires persist by going underground during the winter. That was Jonathan Lambert, reporter for ScienceNews.org. He has been researching this phenomenon and wrote an article on it recently. It seems these fires are rather clever. Even covered by feet of snow, they feed off of an apparently abundant fuel supply. I'm not I'm not exactly sure how much fuel is there. There is um, the soils in these regions um, are really rich in carbon and other sort of combustible material. This fuel comes in the form of peat, and the Arctic is full of it, and it's concerning. There's a lot of carbon locked into these soils. Um, so peat, peatlands, which cover a lot of um, some 400 million acres of the Arctic, store about as much carbon as all of the trees on Earth. Let that sink for a moment. These never-say-die fires have more carbon fuel available to them than what is stored in all of the world's forests. So the zombie fire is sneaking around under the snow cap eating away to its heart's content. With all that available fuel, it must grow fast and large. They do not spread very fast. The scientists in this study found that they moved uh, no more than 500 meters over the course of a winter, or the vast majority of fires didn't move more than 500 meters, which is not very far when you think of how, how sort of quickly above ground fires can move uh, in just a matter of days. They may not spread like their above ground cousins, but burning five football fields in the dead of winter under feet of snow is impressive. We know our world is changing. Record hurricane seasons, severe drought across the West, and now fires that refuse to die. All symptoms of a much larger issue. They're still, like zombie fires in particular are a small threat, but they're sort of indicative of the increasing threat of fires in the Arctic and how it could um, could sort of set off a, a, a bad positive feedback loop where more fires release more carbon, which sets the stage for more fires in the future. So in general, fires are becoming a uh, a bigger problem in the Arctic. Um, 
In, during the 2000s, fires burned on average 50% more acreage than they did during most of the 1900s. Um, Alaska in 2015 had one of its worst fire years on record. I think the second worst fire year on record in 2019 was pretty bad too. Um, so in general, climate change is increasing the threat of forest fires in, in this region. Um, and the scientists who did this study analyzed uh, satellite images from 2002 to 2018 and looked for sort of uh, factors that made zombie fires more likely to occur. And one of those factors was um, extreme summer temperatures, which is associated with with a warming um, with a warming Arctic region. And so, long story short, uh, the zombie fires are still relatively rare. Um, so over the course of the the years that the scientists analyzed, they accounted for less than one percent of the total burned area um, in these regions. But there was a lot of variability. So one year in 2008, um, one zombie fire accounted for 38% of all the burned areas um, that year in Alaska. And so they're, they're a rare threat, but climate change is making, um, is sort of setting the stage for them to become potentially a bigger threat. As if, if sort of fires become increasingly common across the Arctic, all of this carbon that's currently locked up in these peatlands and in, in permafrost in regions that are sort of permanently frozen where this carbon is locked in. If those lands burn, they're gonna release a lot of carbon, which is sort of just gonna exacerbate um, climate change and warming in these regions even more. When we come back. It's the first study to kind of just get a broader picture of how big of a problem these are and what sorts of variables make them more likely. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the seven weather team once again to do what we do best, keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the Storm Station, 7 News. Welcome back to Weather or Not. Zombie fires are a reality in the boreal forests of North America. I'm speaking with Jonathan Lambert, reporter for sciencenews.org. He's researching this phenomenon. Scientists are now stepping in, trying to gather data to better understand the zombie fires. Anything being done to keep these fires in check or from starting at all? Um, I don't know. I don't know of any sort of actions that are being taken to to limit zombie fires. I think they are so rare. Um, and before this report, they were really, it wasn't well understood how sort of widespread they were or whether they were widespread. Um, some of the scientists who I talked to for this story suggested that um, the methods that this team used uh, sort of provide a proof of concept that you could say, look at areas where there was an especially hot fire the summer before um, that might sort of have moved underground and then 
local fire managers can go out and, and see is this, could this be a problem the next year and then be better equipped to, to tackle them uh, once they start, if they start that next season. So in your research here with those scientists, what are they looking at? What are they studying as far as these uh, zombie fires are concerned? Um, so really they're, they're trying just to kind of get uh, a, a, a more global look at the factors that, um, at sort of what conditions make these zombie fires more likely and how big of a problem they were. Because before this study, there really wasn't um, sort of a large scale regional analysis of where these occurred. They were just known from anecdotal reports. And so this is the first study to really take um, not a global look because they only look at Alaska and parts of Canada, but um, that's still a pretty big chunk of, of the boreal forest. And so it's the first study to kind of just get a broader picture of how big of a problem these are and what sorts of variables make them more likely. Thank you. That was Jonathan Lambert, reporter for ScienceNews.org. And now from zombie fires to catching pythons? Here's Erica Delgado. First and foremost, Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. Can you tell us a little bit about the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission and what the agency handles? Yeah, absolutely. So the FWC's mission is to manage fish and wildlife resources, <clears throat> excuse me, for their long-term well-being and benefit of the people of Florida. So we're always working towards meeting that objective and certainly controlling invasive species is a huge component of our agency's mission. And that's where I come in. I help to oversee that non-native fish and wildlife program. So you just mentioned the invasive part and obviously the agency's name um, includes wildlife, just not fish. And you know, we, we hear about here in South Florida, the pythons and how invasive they are to South Florida. Can you tell us a little bit about that and where they're currently, where we find them here in South Florida? Sure, uh, Burmese pythons, they are an invasive species in the state of Florida and they negatively impact our state's ecology and native wildlife. They actually directly consume our native wildlife. They prey on mammals, birds, and even some of our reptiles. And that includes some endangered and imperiled species. So again, this is a really high priority for our agency to, and our partners to address this invasive species because it's causing such uh, detriment to our Everglades ecosystem. So we put a lot of effort and time and talent and everything into controlling this species and we're trying to remove as many of them from the ecosystem as we can. Currently they inhabit natural areas across South Florida. Their range really extends from south of Lake Okeechobee down into the Northern Keys and all the way across from Broward County west to Collier. So, so because it's south of Lake Okeechobee, I guess the closer to uh, the swampy areas like Everglades is probably where we find um, a bigger population of them invading, correct? That's, that's correct, yeah. And, and how exactly did they get to the U.S.? I mean, if they are invasive, they probably didn't orig originate from here. Yeah, great question. So unfortunately, Florida is really susceptible to the establishment of invasive species. And quite a few of the species that we have here in the state are um, a result of the exotic pet trade. And that is true for the python. They were actually introduced, we believe, as early as the late 1970s, early 80s, and since then have really established a strong foothold in our Everglades ecosystem and have spread. So now there's a breeding population in the Everglades. 
is that why it's so difficult to keep this Python population under control? Because I feel like, you, mm-hmm. I mean, you say 1970s now, and that actually comes to a surprise for me. I thought, you know, this is something more recent, just like, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, but 1970s. Yeah, you know, so the first documentation of one was found in the late 1970s, just outside Everglades National Park. And so there were probably just a few at that point. But over time, that population, as they began breeding, started to spread probably from multiple introductions in different areas. And so by the 90s and by the early 2000s, land managers and biologists really started to notice wow, this is a problem. You know, these things are really here. They're established now. And you're right. That is a huge part of why they are so um, difficult to control. They're really well camouflaged. If you look at a picture of a Burmese python, there's actually one right behind me. I don't know if you're recording the video or not, but it's got this um, giraffe-like pattern with, you know, dark and light browns, and it blends in perfectly with the Everglades ecosystem. So they're incredibly difficult to find it can take people hours, you know, searching in the field, even if they're local experts, to find these things. And I, I think I read um, at one point about Burmese pythons when they lay their eggs. It's not just one at a time, but multiple at a time. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, they can lay, you know, an average nest could range anywhere from 20 or 30 eggs, max probably 90 to 100 in a single nest. And the female python will actually stay with her clutch of eggs and guard and protect them. So it's a very unique uh, reproductive strategy that is another reason that makes them such a um, successful invader in our state. I mean, that is a crazy amount. No wonder it's so difficult. And I'm assuming now, you know, with this python challenge uh, that we've been reading about, really will help the cause. Can you tell us a little bit about the python challenge? Yeah, so this is the Python Challenge is something we're really excited about uh, hosting again this year with our partners at the South Florida Water Management District and, of course, with the support of our governor and the legislature. It's an awareness campaign primarily. So we really use this event to get the word out to our public that invasive species are a significant issue for native wildlife biodiversity. And by Getting that word out, it brings attention to other invasive species issues that impact the state of Florida. In addition to that, people can compete to win prizes for engaging in invasive species removal efforts. And so the whole gist of the Python Challenge is that you can sign up and register at flpythonchallenge.org, take the online safety and identification training that's required, and then you can go out into the field during the competition dates, which are July 9th through the 18th this year, and try to find, catch, and then you're going to have to humanely kill on site any, any pythons that are captured. Those are turned into the state, and we take official measurements and weigh them, and ultimately we determine who the winners are in a couple different categories uh, for most pythons and for the longest pythons. Gosh, so, so anyone really could register as long as you uh, read, you take that special training that you mentioned. Yes, that's correct. Anyone is welcome to register. We oftentimes, we have, of course, have Florida residents who register and we oftentimes get people from out of state, even out of uh, different countries sometimes that come to Florida to participate in this competition. And we encourage anybody to, to join. So again, you just have to go register online at flpythonchallenge.org. There is a $25 registration fee and you do have to pass that online quiz about the safety training and the identification training prior to completing your registration. 
Once that happens, you'll get a notification that your registration was successful and off you go. You can get into the field as soon as those competition dates roll around. I mean, what a way to create an incentive to actually helping a big problem that's here in South Florida. Is there anything the general public can do other than obviously, you know, register for the Python challenge to help keep that Python population under control in the future? Absolutely. You know, for any non-native species in the state of Florida and anywhere for that matter, we always want to remember the message, don't let it loose. So it, it even applies to anything beyond pythons. So if you have a pet tegu or a pet iguana, you know, iguana or anything like that, a bearded dragon, whatever, uh, just don't let it loose. There are opportunities out there if for whatever reason you don't want your exotic pet anymore. The FWC actually has an exotic pet amnesty program that you can surrender those animals to the state and we will help you find another home for those animals with pre-approved adopters. Another thing to remember is that the public can also help control invasive species, especially non-native reptiles and even like freshwater fish uh, year round. They're really not protected in the state of Florida except by anti-cruelty law. And so we actually have, um, it's called Executive Order 2017. It sounds very um, formal, <laughs> but I strongly encourage people to check that out on our website because what that executive order authorizes is anyone in the state to go out into 25 of our commission managed lands in South region, and you can lethally take non-native reptiles year round. There's no bag limit, there's no hunting license or permit requirements. There's not even a reporting requirement. You just have to follow the specific area regulations for wherever you're working and make sure that everything is humanely killed on site. That's another way that we want to encourage our public to help be a part of the solution. And of course, if you're not comfortable with getting your hands directly on something like that, you can always report observations of non-native fish and wildlife like the Burmese python to our exotic species hotline, which is 888-I've-got-one, kind of fun. And then we <laughs> also have a reporting website at essentially the same name, I've got one, the number one, dot org. And a biologist will look at that information taking really clear photographs, getting an exact location or GPS points will really help us determine where the issue is and if it's credible or not, and whether or not we need to rapidly respond to remove that animal from the wild. And then of course, you can always join the Florida Python Challenge for a chance to win fun prizes. I mean, I can see the efforts that are going into this and trying to stop this uh, Python population from growing so fast. Another question, I, you mentioned that the Python Challenge is back this year. How many years has it been running? Is this the second year or has it been longer? Yeah, good question. So the first Python Challenge was held in 2013. We had another one in 2016. Uh, last year, we had the third Python Challenge, which we actually called the Python Bowl because we had a really unique opportunity to partner with the Miami Super Bowl host mm. committee promote the event. So that was a really neat opportunity. And then this year would mark our fourth Python Challenge. Okay, and have they all been in the summer or is it, does it matter what time of year? Is it easier to catch them in the summer or? Yeah, so this year, all the previous events were held in typically around January. And this year we're trying something new. We're just trying to explore a new uh, time of year to see if there is an opportunity for our public to be able to find even more pythons. During the warmer months, pythons tend to be more active. So there's a potential that people might have even more luck um, going out in the summer. We're gonna try it and see how it goes. Yeah, now do you, is there a, do you guys have a specific number as to how many were caught last year or is just so many to count that you can't really? Um... 
Uh, well, overall, since um, really the year 2000, once we really started keeping close tabs on Burmese python removals across the state by all efforts, all of our partners, the public, et cetera, uh, we've removed in Florida well over 13,000 pythons, which is kind of astronomical when you really think about it. Now, the python challenge events don't necessarily bring in that many pythons. Usually it's between like 60 and 100 animals that the public will catch and turn in. But every python removed is a success for native wildlife. That's one less large constrictor snake that's out there consuming our native wildlife. I mean, I was thinking along the number of 10. I was not expecting that many, let alone 13,000 over the years. I mean, this obviously is a big problem for us here in South Florida. If we've caught 13,000 over the, the amount of years that we've been trying to do this. Yeah, it, it really is a huge problem for our native wildlife. And that's why the FWC and the South Florida Water Management District, National Park Service, and so many other partners put so much time, talent, and effort into addressing this problem. It really truly is a high priority for the state of Florida. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Obviously, you know, getting the word out there about this invasive species, you know, Burmese pythons, and obviously this python challenge that your agency has been doing for the past few years is obviously leading things in the right direction. And hopefully, you know, in the next five years, we'll have that number down to something that we can really work with and it won't be such a problem. But thank you again for doing, taking the time for doing this. And um, can you visit, tell us again, that one website where they can go for more information for the Python Challenge? Sure. Yeah, to register and sign up and read about the Python Challenge, you wanna to go to flpythonchallenge.org. And if you're interested in learning more about what the FWC does in addition to the Python Challenge to control pythons, you can check out myfwc.com slash python. Perfect. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you.